This is the Art of Quality podcast. The Art of Quality is a series of conversations with investors and operators of high-quality backgrounds. From decades of exploring quality in business and life, we have found that the underlying patterns are often only accessible via stories and dialogue, and not with more research notes or Excel models. We are here to bring patterns of quality to you. To find more episodes of The Art of Quality, go to theartofquality.co. In this podcast, we are joined by Mark Helwig. Mark is obsessed with bringing high-quality coffee to consumers through beautifully designed and sustainable products. He is the founder and CEO of Ratio Coffee, Clive Coffee, and Able Brewing. Mark, welcome. Thank you for, Thank you. for joining us. Um, we're excited to, to go deep on coffee and, and coffee products. So to get us going here, Introduce yourself, give us your background, and, and then kind of lead us into, you know, why coffee, why coffee products, why the, the niches of the coffee world yeah. that you, you've chosen to occupy. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and this is the first time I've been on a podcast, so I'm a little, uh, have a little bit of trepidation, but it's an honor to be here and to talk about a quality that I, a, a topic that I, that I like a lot and have thought about a lot over the years. So I'm Mark Helwig. I, I'm here in Portland, Oregon with my wife. We have four kids, ranging from six to 16. So we have uh, we have little kid problems, which uh, this past weekend was my, my six-year-old decided to, as he described it, a uh, let an eraser fall into his nose. Uh, and that required, <laughs> that required a trip to uh, Zoom Care to deal with that. Um, up to a 16-year-old, and we're teaching her how to drive. And she is like very brutally honest about which parent is better at teaching someone how to drive. And it's not, it's not me. Um, and that's, that's okay. Yeah. So I've been in the coffee equipment industry since 2008. Uh, cannot believe how long that is like just shocking. But, uh, I, um, first how I got into coffee was, you know, my dad bought a Starbucks barista espresso machine when I was, 13 or 14 or something like that. And that was my first taste of coffee. And then when I got, a, when I got my car, I remember, I remember um, loving the ritual of being in a cafe and I would drive, we lived out like maybe 30 minutes outside of Portland out in the sticks. And I remember getting in my uh, 1994 Honda Accord and driving from rural Oregon, <laughs> more or less into Portland to this Italian cafe called Torrefazione. And that was the place where they, they would, where they brought a sense of craft, I guess, to the beverage. So, you know, they would, they would texturize the, the, the milk and they would, they would pour Rosetta in this like hand painted pottery. And then you'd sit on, sit on the patio. And so I would bring, I would, I was really, really into Hemingway at the time. So I bring a Hemingway book and get my, my cappuccino and my limonada, this very like precious moment or whatever. Uh, and, and then, um, Fast forward a couple of years and, you know, I got married in 2005. My wife and I lived right in inner Southeast Portland and Stumptown, like their number two store was on Belmont. So I go to, I go to that store and um, get a cup of, a cup of French press coffee. It was $1 back in the day. Wow. That's how old I am. 
And that's where I discovered the the sort of the taste quality of coffee, like the culinary aspect, the the different senses of terroir and different types of coffee and the different, you know, this is a wash process, this is a natural process. So started to, you know, think about coffee and and, and love coffee. And it was certainly a daily routine. And then in 2008, I had worked with my brother and my dad on an e-commerce business that was in the wakeboarding and snowboarding space. And this was like early e-com, you know, 2000, I think they started in 2003 and I joined in 2005, right when I got married and it was early enthusiast e-commerce marketing, right? So they were, they were a full price retailer selling high-end wakeboarding gear. They, they were growing rapidly as, I mean, really what was happening in hindsight was people were getting a home equity line of credit, buying a boat, buying all this wakeboarding gear, whatever. It was like totally, totally like a, a unnatural uh, explosion of this category, right? And uh, then we went into the snowboarding space to counter, to, to, to balance out the, the seasonality of the wakeboarding business and whatever. And so we went from, when I joined the company, I think there were like four or five of us in my dad's basement. And then by the time, uh, fast forward to 2007, thereabouts, we had... I think 15 employees and we bought an espresso machine for the office and going back to my dad's Starbucks barista, we up, we bumped up from a Starbucks barista machine into a Vanchilli of Sylvia. And it was my job to buy the machine. I was running operations at the time, operations of finance. So I was shopping for an espresso machine. I, I find the Vanchilli of Sylvia. And as I'm shopping, like it kind of stuck in my head, like, wow, no one's doing a really good job with e-commerce storytelling like you see in the in the snowboarding and wakeboarding space you know no like kind of a cluttered category you, you, you see this wall of products sort of undifferentiated stainless steel boxes um there, there was always a dark roasted coffee bean banner across the top and some big ugly font or whatever and um there, there wasn't good copywriting there wasn't good you know photo and video assets to sort of merchandise you know what you're buying and uh, long story short, that business, uh, the, the entire wakeboarding industry contracted massively in a very short period of time in 2007, 2008. And my dad was the investor in that business and he got so tired of funding all of these losses and whatever else. So we ended up, that business was going to be sold off. And I worked with my brother and, with, um, to work on this idea I had, which was going back to shopping for an espresso machine saying, huh, I wonder if, I wonder if people would buy high quality coffee equipment online. It was just a theory, and I, I was actually preparing to go on to go on a uh, on unemployment because I was losing my job, and my wife and I we had a, we had our first kid at the time, so I'm like terrified, and it seems like a really terrible time to start a business, 2008, right? But with his help, I took the website and essentially swapped out all the assets in the copy for <laughs> wakeboarding stuff, and put in coffee equipment stuff that I could easily drop ship or or you know buy small quantities of or whatever. Borrowed ten thousand dollars from my grandma. And uh, launched CliveCoffee.com in September of 2008. And my first month of business, we had about $7,000 of revenue. And the second month, we had $75,000 revenue. And the reason for that is Cook's Illustrated Magazine had reviewed coffee makers in the October issue. And they happened to pick out of a lineup of 10 coffee makers, the same one that I had picked to offer on clivecoffee.com. And that was because I had, with my dad's help, surveyed the, the, the 
you know, the, the coffee equipment category and came to the conclusion that there's really only one option. It's the Mocha Master. This, this Dutch company that's been making this design since 1964, it can, the, the coffee maker controls the water temperature and the time of the brew cycle and all that. So uh, Cook's Illustrated, their conclusion after testing Mr. Coffee and I, I can't even remember all the brands, but they basically said, if you're not going to get a Mocha Master, stick with a French press. And so that was like jet fuel for for the business. And I ended up selling, uh, I think, around a million dollars in 2009. That's essentially one skew. Wow. It was a fantastic business for a very short period of time. <laughs> uh, I we actually did. I, I had so much money from this one year of running the business with like one part time employee that would come in to shift shift these coffee makers. That I took my wife and our and our then she was I think three or fourth time took her to Costa Rica. Ended up buying a micro light micro lot of coffee from Terra Zoo. Started expanding the co- the coffee selection of that we had on 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 our website. And then uh, the wave that we were riding became it became apparent that it was a wave when the bigger retailers, of course, they read the Cook Illustrated article, they see the opportunity. So. With the William Sonoma, the Crate and Barrel, like all these big retailers, they add Mocha Master, and then our sales just dropped dramatically. Like it was, it was reminded me of the wave cresting in the wakeboarding space. So at Clive, we pushed into espresso machines, and we ended up negotiating a couple of deals to import uh, a, a, a exclusive label called Luca. I came up with the name Luca from a beautiful town um, near near Pisa on the on the, uh, the coast, Ligurian coast in Italy. So came up with the Luca brand and started importing customized espresso machines for the American market. And so this is 2012 or so. And looking at the drip coffee maker space, there still was just kind of Mocha Master. And then Bonavita came out in 2000 and gosh, 2012, I think. And that was another wave. We sold a whole lot of Bonavita, made a bunch of money. It was awesome. And then before you know it, Amazon's selling it at a discount or whatever it is. And we that wave crests. So I, I'm realizing this great weakness in my business model of I have a point of view of what I will and will not sell. I'm not going to carry every brand. I'm not going to carry every product. So there's only so much that's coming out that that fits the Clive offering. And it's only a matter of time before that those products make their way into, of course, like they should, you know, onto the other retailers. So this is a, this is a fatal flaw in the business model. And um, concurrently with this, my wife, I think we had our second or third child by this time. And my coffee appreciation has matured a little bit. I've started to really love a well-made pour-over cup of coffee. Kova is here in Portland. They're doing this really elaborate and and theatrical, you know, pour-over process. That they they would hold two Japanese pouring kettles, in, one in each hand, and they would they kept setting it on this induction heater to like con- like keep the temperature very very stable. And they would have a gram scale and a timer and this like very very like optimized pour of a process right the cup of coffee is is very nuanced and very expressive of the coffee just like really really nice right so i'm I'm looking at the deficiencies in the business model i'm looking at my own home coffee routine and like my wife and i have started to realize okay we actually need like 20 ounces of coffee each in the morning and there's nothing quite like the feeling of like i feel like i need to have coffee before i can make coffee and if you need 40 ounces of coffee that tastes good, reminds you of this hand, hand, hand-brewed cup of coffee that you got at Kova or whatever, and you also want something in your kitchen that's beautiful that you don't want to hide in your pantry when you have guests over, there just wasn't anything on the market besides this, this heritage brand of Mocha Master. 
So that led me to create Ratio as a brand and our first product, Ratio 8. We started working on this in 2012. We launched a pre-order campaign, like our own sort of Kickstarter style campaign on our own website. And we end up pre-selling, I don't know, $620,000 worth of cock makers or something like that, which is fantastic, right? But the problem is you then have to ship $620,000 worth of cock makers that reflect the promise you made that this is going to be a lovely, well-made cup, you know, coffee maker, the coffee's going to be wonderful, um, all these other things. And so that launched me on this uh, Kali. Now, you know, here we are, 2023. This is 11 years later. Uh, this journey of like discovery of coffee equipment and what quality means and, and how do you, as you start to expand your your audience and you start to sell to people who are used to a Coreg and you're getting them into a ratio and, you know, how do we grow? How do we grow this company well? And how do we have a manufacturing facility in Portland, Oregon, with right increasing costs and complexity? And then pan- the pandemic and like all this stuff. So it's like, oh, sort of terrifying, you know. But I guess we're going to keep going. I don't. Sorry, that was a very long. That was a very long. No, story. this is That's, great, man. It's it's amazing to see how one you know starting with wakeboards, you know, <laughs> one yeah. one thing led to the yeah. next, led to the next, yeah. led to the next. It's 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 fascinating. So so. I mean, there's so many things I want to I want to double click on, but but maybe if we start back at the beginning and then I'll, I'll we can kind of work our way through. So when you started Clive, you know, you said there was Mocha Master and and kind of nothing else, and then obviously there was a version of that with with espresso equipment as well. Why was the market like that? Was it was it just you know consumers sort of like didn't know what they were missing, or did did you kind of have a view of you know how how did how did this product from 1964 kind of how was that the only option for for decades? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion around the waves of in coffee, first wave, second wave, third wave. Um, third wave, of course, is specialty coffee. That's kind of like the stump town I was speaking to, where people started to think about the origin of their coffee and whatever else. And I think that the on the equipment side, I was just lagging. It was lagging what was happening at, at the cafe level um, and the roaster level. And certainly, the uh, one of the last categories to catch up, I think, was the was the automatic cockmaker. So, it, you know, back in two thousand eight, when I started when I started Clive, there already was the Hario V sixty, and there was, of course, the Chemex has been around for a long time. So there was the Chemex, the Hario, Kalita was another brand that came that started being sold in the U.S. around that time. There was exploration with you know the Yama, um, the vacuum, the vacuum pots, and then Aeropress comes out with with their with their brewer. So. Like a lot of the stuff that I think was early and innovative in the in the home coffee equipment space tended to be more manual. And as is natural, the people drawn to drawn to this early this first wave or not first wave, sorry, but the first expression of the third wave revolution, if you want to call it that, were tend to be the, the types who like to to explore and they like to tinker and the, the different variables in coffee brewing that you have to control, like they're delighted by that that, that sort of challenge. And those tend to be more manual. Or espresso, certainly, you know, Lumberzoco at the top end started coming out with um, espresso machines that had digital control of the temperature. Now they have pressure profiling and all these all these other things which you can modulate the, the, the flavor of the coffee. But on the, in the automatic coffee maker space, you know, full credit to the founder of, of Mocha Master. I met him a couple of years ago. Um, he's, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he had he had a vision for, you know, a really, really excellent cup of filter coffee and as a dutch guy you know kind of kind of adjacent to the nordic regions where they where they they have been drinking i think well-brewed filter coffee for a long time 
certainly longer than Americans have <laughs> had a typical good cup of filter coffee. Then, then the Specialty Coffee Association, they came out with a formal, a formal testing regimen that, that brands could submit their products to get the certification saying, this brewer controls the time and the temperature and whatever else to produce a good cup of coffee. And so it, it used to be just Mocha Master, and then it was, uh, and it was Bona Vita. If you'd like, I can explain to you why the Ratio 8 doesn't have SCA certification, um, if that's interesting. But the, the Ratio 6 does. And then now, fast forward to 2023, I think there's at least 20 coffee makers that have the certification. So now, now this badge that's saying your coffee maker brews according to these specs is less, it's less special. You know, it's, it's yeah. still a good, it's still a good indication of, yeah. of cup quality, but it's not, you can't just hang your hat on that any longer like you could 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that a piece of that story. So you mentioned you're, you know, living, you know, um, just outside Portland and coming in. And so you had to experience quality coffee and, and sort of go through that journey yourself. And that sort of drew you into the category and drew you into to wondering, you know, how much better can it be and where are there holes? And it, it, it strikes me that there, I mean, I, I didn't sort of really understand how good coffee could be till I lived in London and there's so many mm. good coffee shops there. You sort of just yeah. drinking yeah. good coffee by accident. And then, and then in my case, I got curious and then, it, you know, I've owned half the products you just mentioned there as part of that journey. But uh, there, there's sort of this base level, you know, I think they're probably still much of the world, you know, still just hasn't been exposed to what coffee can be. And, yeah. uh, and, and so I, I'd imagine we're still probably fairly early in that journey at, at the level of the human species, you know, of, huh. of, of leveling our uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, average level of coffee. Yeah, you know, you know, it's uh, coffee. Coffee and wine are frequently compared, and certainly there there are similarities with the volatile compounds and the different flavors and the different ways you can, you know, explore explore wine and coffee. But of course, the big difference with coffee, if you're making it at home, is you have to make it yourself. It, with wine, you just open up a bottle, and unless you're storing it in your in your sauna, uh, it's going to taste good. Yeah. And with coffee, again, there are all these variables that have to be controlled. So, um, I think that. I think that a big opportunity space that is still just being is in early days is finding ways to ensure that the that the person who ventured out and decided to upgrade from commodity level of coffee, maybe a five pound bag of coffee from Costco or the, a, a Coreg or whatever, and they and they they spring for a twelve ounce bag of coffee from a local micro store that's eighteen dollars or twenty two dollars or whatever. If they take that home and they make that coffee and on Tuesday it's, it's stings. It's delightful. It's, it's this perfect cup of coffee. And on Thursday it's undrinkable plonk. I mean, they're not going to keep doing that. They're just going to go back. They're going to, they're going to fall back to what is more predictable. Even if it's not as good, if it's predictably okay, they will typically, I think, just do that. So the opportunity space is whether depending on people's lifestyles, preferences for, you know, aesthetics, budget whatever it, it, as long as they can find a way of making coffee with, that is you know delightful and reliable and whatever else that that will support the specialty coffee industry and every all the efforts that are being made to you know ensure ensure a fair price that's paid to the producers to make sure we keep getting these yummy coffees delivered to to the roasters or whatever so we see it as this um uh, you know a virtuous a virtuous uh virtuous and may not be the right right phrase yeah. but a, a a truly sustainable in all senses of the word industry and the more we can empower the home the home brewer if you will to to do it to um enjoy that process and not feel like they're wasting their time or their money 
um, the better everyone everyone will be. Sure, sure. Can can you say more on um, it? It took me too long in life to realize that buying the least expensive thing in the short run is often mm. the most expensive thing to do in the long run. And so, I, I mean, I, I experienced that with coffee as well. I think I've had a lot of bad coffee makers and they break fairly quickly. And of course, they don't make that good a coffee to begin with. And, yeah. you know, by contrast, one of the things I love about your products is, amongst other things, they're repairable. And so you sort of can yeah. buy a product and, and yes, you're going to pay for quality, but that's a product that can be with you for a long time. And actually in the long run, you get, I mean, right away you get, you know, better tasting coffee, but then in the long run, actually it can be a much wiser financial decision as well. And of course it wastes fewer yeah. resources and all the rest of it. So how, how, yeah. how did you sort of navigate that as you designed product? And then also as you, I think it's just hard to, I think a lot of people don't get that. Right, that's like pay up now, but trust me, you're saving money. Um, so, how have you kind of navigated that as you've put product into the world and designed it and sold it and so on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I credit I credit my dad for giving me an appreciation for this. You know, buy once instead of twice. I, there's a better phrase I can't remember what it is, but you know, he he would. Uh, I remember he built out a woodworking shop and he would buy like all the Bosch the Bosch equipment instead of the low end stuff that, that's half the price. That, Home Depot or whatever, he would buy good quality gear. And I saw I saw this again and again over time, just with his own collection of tools, that this this actually worked. This actually worked better. It, the yeah. the you know the the per use cost is quite a bit lower actually if you're not re- repeatedly rebuying the same thing. And his own journey with espresso machines. Again, he started with the Starbucks barista machine, and then he upgraded to the Rancheria Silvia, and then he got a Quick Andrea. Now he has a direct plumb, rotary rotary pump, Lishpazielli Luca machine with Sapili um, mahogany panels on it. So you know a lot of us have experienced this process of of upgrading your 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 products as you start to appreciate the nuance and 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 what what quality might might mean in that. So I I, I suppose I took I, I took the experience of being a merchant of coffee equipment through Clive and talking to customers repeatedly about what. What problems do they have? Like, what are they looking for in coffee? What are they looking for their coffee makers? What what pisses them off about a particular device or whatever? And how can we how can we solve for that? So, you know, the the price point of the ratio ratio products. I mean, we're substantially higher than our competitors. And how I how I think about that is we're essentially you know, it's, this is my opinion, of course, but I think we have the most beautiful coffee equipment out there. So that's the aesthetic side of it. That's the that's like the beauty side of it, but we work really, really hard to deliver on the quality side so that what you see and what you're immediately attracted to and what you have this, you know, this initial unboxing experience, that is a durable thing. And that you, that love, that initial like infatuation or love or whatever you want to call it for that product, you first buy it in an ideal world that, 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 that is sustained by the quality of the product. And you might even begin to appreciate your, your, that product more and more over time. Um, And it takes a great deal of effort to deliver on a brand promise, you know, if you're offering this pretty coffee maker, but to deliver on it from a quality perspective and to build a quality company that can support this product with all the way from the engineering of the other product, all the way to the, the customer service team that's handling the warranty tickets and talking customers through what it's, you know, okay, dialing in your grinder and what's, Oh, you have overflow. Like, how do we deal with that? It's this 360 kind of view of quality. And, 
to support, you know, a five-year warranty and to have a repairable product where even beyond the five years, you can, you can send in your ratio and we'll, we'll rebuild it. We will swap out the heating element. We'll, we'll, we'll replace, you know, something that broke on it. That's how we think about quality. And that's why the retail price, we feel like reflects the quality. It's, it's not just buying a $90, you know, Gucci t-shirt because it's Gucci. It's, you're buying something that's, that's genuinely quality. Yeah. Mark, can I ask? <clears throat> like, it's it's quite interesting as you explain that how you are almost using a different time horizon to define quality than than many people mm-hmm. in the problem, right? So you're saying, I'm I'm de- defining quality from the first interaction of the unboxing the whole way through to support that might be five years later and repair, which might yeah. be ten years later. Can you yeah. just talk us through like how you got to thinking about that? Uh, um, how how you think about weaving that into your business and and like what surprised you about doing that? Like it, it sets you apart from, from certainly folks that I've come across. So just love for you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, I think that looking at like Amazon and the ocean of products you can find on Amazon and how uh, that, that serves a purpose, right? I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not bagging, I'm not bagging on Amazon, right? They, they serve it. They serve a purpose. <laughs> I frequently buy products on Amazon, but that's the that's the fast and cheap and usually undifferentiated and there's no one to call there's no relationship there it's just highly transactional and so you're buying you're buying a widget to solve a particular problem like you need to have a compost bin or you need to have you know uh, we have rabbits at our house so i'm buying i bought so many things for rabbits unbelievable and as amazon has grown and and the amazon type of business has grown and has become so efficient the alternative path for an entrepreneur is to just to be small and special and differentiated and very, very thoughtful. And so there's, there's this empathetic thinking you have to do to, to imagine, you know, what do people, what are people, what problems do they have in brewing coffee and how could we solve it in a way where they would take a gamble on a small upstart brand of 15 people from Portland, Oregon and not buy the Jura or whatever. That's the the more obvious choice, and it, it, it's this is this is this has, has never been like a uh, you know a, a particularly well designed plan. I would say it was more of like sort of jumping into it and then first validating a couple of assumptions, like will people pay for the? I mean, now our high end ratio rates eight hundred fifty dollars. Will people pay four hundred to eight hundred fifty dollars for a drip coffee maker? Well, our our pre order campaign back in two thousand thirteen demonstrated that yes, they would. And then the second question was like. Could we actually build a supply chain to ship that thing? That dang thing, and yes, we could. And would they keep buying it after the initial bleeding edge customer who's willing to throw down four hundred dollars for a you know pre order campaign? Are there more people than that to sustain this business? And can we support a seven year old coffee maker that has a problem? So it's just been essentially answering these questions one at a time, and then building the product line and the team and the the investor base and everything else that we that we need to be a, um, a viable business. Yeah. What have, yeah, what have that. you learned in uh, in terms of the the product itself? Um, I mean, I, I, I physical products are so difficult, right? In, in a way, and so you 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 know design and and think and 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 build and test, but then at some point it's out in the wild. And I I mean, I imagine there's just you know 
there, there are things that have gone well in ways that you could have never expected. And there are things that, that you just sort of like, well, why would anyone even think to do that to a coffee machine? And now it, it, they broke it. You know? and so <laughs> well, what, what have you learned about, you know, as you've refined your product, you know, what are, I mean, I imagine there's all sorts of surprising things where it's like, you actually have to think about this or that, you know, that yeah. maybe isn't, isn't obvious yeah. from the outset. Yeah, the, the, the number of coffee makers we've taken into our service center that have coffee beans in the water tank. We've had we've taken apart coffee makers and there are ants inside of it because they live in Florida or something and I, I, keeping it on our patio. I don't know. We see all we see all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I think one of the one of the ongoing challenges we've had is that the ratio the ratio essentially solves for the extraction side, the water side of the coffee brewing equation. We don't have anything to offer on the grinding side, so we are using other grinders paired up with our brewers and that works that works okay we we essentially have two two grinders that we recommend the fellow the fellow ode and the brazza encore are our sort of those are not the only only options on, on the market certainly but those are sort of the two um options that we default to we 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 find that people are are frustrated by the grinding process they are frustrated by the noise and the chaff and the 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 grind setting question of like well i changed the coffee and all of a sudden the coffee tastes bad like why and it's it, why why is you know that's that's an ongoing challenge we we have not solved that we try to whether it's our team talking to someone you know via chat or phone or email or it's just our website copy we try to actually filter out people that wouldn't be a good fit for ratio it's not in our best interest or their best interest to get into a ratio if it's not a good fit for them so the ratio is not for everyone. Um, it is certainly not the cheapest. It doesn't. There are a lot of features that are normally in coffee makers that we pulled out to try to coax a better a better experience and a better tasting cup of coffee. And we also we also have pulled out some things that we believe lead to a longer lasting product. So we we could have done a robotic arm that is mimic, exactly mimicking what a water kettle does when it's making a pour over. That would have been a moving part. That probably would fail over time. That may scale build up would interrupt that that process or whatever. So we've made some decisions with our uh, our. We have a ratio Venn diagram, so to speak, that has been guiding our our process since the very beginning. And it's not the most elegant thing in the world, but it's it works fine for us. So we essentially have three interlocking circles that are equally balanced. We try to keep them in equal tension. And it's the beauty of something, the form, the function. That's sort of like self evident. You just look at it. You're like, oh, I like I like the shape of that. Then there's the quality. And that's everything we've been speaking to. And, you know, the, the fact that we use, we use hardware in the ratio line that is reusable for a reason. It costs more, but it enables us to service this thing for, for the long term. We don't use one-use one clips and little cheap, you know, plastic screws and stuff like that. The third circle is simplicity. So we are not the option. If you're looking for dialing in a really, really complicated recipe, I will say in the future, we'll have some more options that introduce professional tools, if you will. But for now, our, our home models, there's one button. You push the button and the ratio eight or six will deliver in a, in a very consistent manner, you know, optimized water temperature and time to deliver coffee. So the ultimate goal of those three circles, like all those things are working in equal tension, hopefully to deliver a great cup of coffee. That's why you buy a ratio or any coffee makers to have a great cup of coffee. And that's our, that's how we think about it. So certainly not disrespecting the options on the market that have all the different recipes that you can modulate. We're, we're, not, we're not speaking negatively of the pod machines or, or the super automatics or whatever. We're just saying we think filter coffee is a beautiful cup of coffee. 
and the the way the way the machine makes coffee in concert with you can be a a really lovely you know ritual a daily a daily ritual. Mark, just on the 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 Venn diagram, like ultimately the thing that's always surprised me about the customer experience as a coffee user is um, you have that kind of some some machines or or certainly some uh, providers in a retail setting they over-optimize for aesthetics. So they have a beautiful retail mm-hmm. setting. They have a beautiful mm-hmm. machine, the commercial machine they probably mm-hmm. spent 20 mm-hmm. grand on. But but <laughs> then they have something missing. They, there's It's just a dull experience. And then uh, at home, I've also seen the other end of the spectrum where um, they've over-optimized for function and you don't have aesthetic and then you don't want it on, on your island in your yeah. kitchen or something. So yeah. can you just talk about like, how you think about the tension point between those things, form and function and, and the aesthetic and function as you're yeah. designing it. And just like what surprised you about that over the years as you've tinkered with it? I like to think that, uh, that, I, that the ratio product line has been probably more successful at, than it would have been otherwise if I hadn't first been a merchant at Clive. So I, I answered all the calls at Clive in the early days. And so I've, I've, I've talked to everything from the most sophisticated coffee enthusiast that has the most detailed questions and they have a TDS meter in their home to, to the, the, the person who is just asking, can I put my, my, can I put Folgers in the ratio? And the answer to that is yes, you can. But, you know, a gentle, a gentle coaxing of like, why well, you might consider changing out the coffee and you, you'd be delighted how, how different it can taste and whatever else. But, uh, I, yeah, I, those interlocking um, values, you know, of, of beauty and quality and simplicity, I really just started with myself. Like, what what am I looking for in a coffee maker? And I, I, I made a bet that there would be enough people out there that would have a similar a similar perspective. And and you know, so everything from the use of materials, the uh, the ratio eight has die cast aluminum parts, metal parts. They're they're heavy. They're, it's like it's overkill. In fact, multiple engineers have told us this thing is overkill. You could put four of them with a with. You could probably park a pickup truck on top of four of them, most likely. You know, it's overkill. It's it's totally overkill. And then we have um, real wood. But like one of our brand values is if you see something that looks like a material, it it, it is it. It is real wood. It is not veneer or plastic printed metal or or wood. If it looks like chrome, it is chrome. It is not plastic that's been plated to look like like chrome. Um, and the, the use of the precision, the, the, the very precise metal parts on the ratio eight, and then the, the wood trim, which has its own, it's a hand sanded wood, wood trim part. It's not perfect. It doesn't, it doesn't mate perfectly with the metal in the same way that it would, if it was a metal or plastic part, the hand blown glass water tank, there are natural imperfections because we took a molten glass material and we, with tools and, um, a lot of expertise formed a glass water tank. Why would you make a glass water tank? It's ridiculous. The, the, the process required to make this thing is, is I've seen it in person. It's, it's bonkers. It's a bonkers level of complexity <laughs> to make this thing. But people will, people have demonstrated by the fact that in fact, today our most backorder product is a glass water tank ratio eight, the eight fifty dollars $850 model is our most backorder product. If you place an order today, uh, May 17th, our estimate is we'll ship it to you um, in, at the end of August. I hate this reality. This is like the most frustrating aspect of my life right now, but it is what it is. So anyway, we have we have all these things that we've done that 
are not the most efficient way to do it. It's certainly not the cheapest way to do it, but I built it off of my love of a corkscrew. Don't judge me, but a very frequently used item in my kitchen is a corkscrew. It's, it's the classic waiter's corkscrew. It's made of metal and it has a walnut, um, two, two pieces of walnut trim that, that made up perfectly against that, that metal. I've had that corkscrew since I got married in 2005. And that little simple tool, we have a picture of that tool on our mood board from the original Ratio 8. So I am drawn to this juxtaposition of natural materials, the imperfections of wood and glass with the perfection of a cast metal metal part. So I, I you know, there, there wasn't some there wasn't some marketing research study that was produced that said, hey, do you, do you know what? People will probably pay a lot of money for a metal, wood, and glass coffee maker. I just used my intuition at, for, that that was formed by being a merchant of coffee equipment over the years at Clive, and then my own like just my own wish list, you know, um, to form the ratio eight. And then from there, we just kept iterating from it. So again, I'm not the best planner in the world. I, I really, I'm not an inventor. I'm not a master planner or anything like that. I just, I just have this, like, I love products. I love beautiful things. My, my grandma had a house in California filled with, uh, an Eames, Eames loungers and Warren Platner dining sets and Calder prints. And I learned to love beautiful objects from her. Um, and then my dad, again, taught me about quality objects. So if you marry the quality and the beauty side, that's sort of what ratio has become. So again, it's not for everybody, um, but you know, I'm happy to say we have enough customers that have <laughs> joined the ratio, ratio you know, project that uh, I think, I think we've, we've proven that there is something there. It's a really interesting one. Um, like I guess what would be really interesting is just to understand who you look up to on the design side. And and I know we mentioned um Cuccinelli before, but but I think it would be interesting just to understand like who you kind of studied and what to to learn some of this stuff and learn some of the these principles over time if if you have a few minutes just to kind of walk through that for a moment. Oh yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um mid century design has been uh has been a part of my life since I was a kid. Again, like my, my grandma had, um, she still does. She's still, she's still with us. She's 92 and she still has her Eames lounger. Her, uh, her second Eames lounger is in my garage waiting to be uh, refurbished at some point when I had the budget for it. <laughs> uh, so mid-century design, uh, Dieter Rahm's, uh, you know, um, thought, thoughtful use of materials has been influential for me. This is cliche, of course, but Apple, um, I remember my first Apple laptop and my first iPhone, just the, the thoughtfulness of, of that, you know, uh, I think it's um, Charles Eames has a quote, something to the effect of the details are not the details. The, the details are the design. And so that's been a, that's been an influential quote for me. I love, I love traditional craftsmanship and old, old school businesses that have been doing the same thing for, for a really long time, all the way from, you know, I love, I love Weber. I love the Weber grill. I have a Weber grill on, in my, on my patio. It is not nearly as cool as some of the expensive, elaborate smokers and, and barbecues. I have a friend who has a pizza oven that was like $3,000. Gosney, I think it is. Uh, another friend has a, has a green egg. Those are like way better quality devices than the Weber. But there's something about this like formed metal basic barbecue that I just, I just love. It's, it's quality enough, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I, I, uh, a friend of mine, Stephen Ken, is a furniture designer and fabricator out of Los Angeles. He does wonderful work. I'm inspired by his use of mixed materials, unusual materials. Like he, I think he started got started with with um, reclaimed military fabrics or something for his couch line. 
I think quality of, of an experience is also something to think about. And, you know, like Hamlet's restaurant in Seattle, I, I love that place. I love the thinking that they put into not just the taste of the food, but the, the entire experience from the person greeting you at the valet parking, you know, all the way to the service to the, the, the take home bag or whatever it is. I really admire products that, that can be, that can age well, that get better over time. Danner boots. I have a pair of Danner hiking boots that have aged super well. Certainly in the espresso machine category, there are lots of options there too, but I, I, I don't want to make it into something that's, you know, precious and like, like overstate it. Like sometimes it's fine to have a, a really cheap, it's just fine product. You know, it, I'm not, my pitch is not everyone should go out and buy the most expensive, highest quality device you can find. That is not, that is not the idea. Yeah. But I certainly think, you know, you know, that term trading up, even if you are, even if you are not in the high income bracket, if there's something that like just strikes your fancy that, that you love, you know, there, find an object that is beautiful and long lasting and it's going to, you know, enhance your enjoyment of that, of that, that thing. Yeah. I love that. That's so that, that notion we we've gone down this rabbit hole before of, of, you know, what, what are things you've encountered that, have gotten better over time or that you enjoy more the longer you have it. And there's just precious little in that category. We've all got a few, but it's just, there's oh yeah. so, so little there. And, um, yeah. and of course a, a, a necessary, but not sufficient condition of that is something that will actually last a long time. <laughs> and then, uh, right. and then of course beauty becomes important. Otherwise it kind of goes stale and then you, you keep going, but that's, that's really interesting that the, I mean, I've seen this and heard this and experienced this with writers that there's this idea that the only person you can really write well for is yourself because mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you only understand, you know, it's hard for me to anticipate what you want out of me as a writer. I can guess, but I will never know it as well as you, but I do know yeah. what I think a good piece of writing is. And I'm sort of hearing that in your product design as well. You know, the, the, the unique set of experiences that have made you, you know, you built a, a, a coffee maker for yourself. And surprise, surprise, there are a lot of other folks that, that share some of those values and want some of that experience. And, and so you put it into the world. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm going to um, nudge us towards a close here in a minute. But Will, Paul, you know, please keep going with questions as, as you have them. I'd love to, to invite you, Mark, to talk a little about how you go about and have gone about finding other people who care about getting on this mission to build things that last. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I think, I think a big part of this is just full credit to the number of advisors I've had over the years. And most of them I still have. My dad is first and foremost. Um, my, my dad made some introductions to his network to, get some of the some of the really early questions answered on a ratio like could you even manufacture a coffee maker in the US and what would it possibly cost and what what is tooling cost and how do you hire a mechanical engineer and and then uh, you know I have Chris Taylor as an old friend an early investor in Clive and now ratio and he would he would sit with me over we would get beers and he would like look at some like really early financial forecast that I had for the ratio and you know I've made I've made billions of dollars in spreadsheets it's really it's pretty amazing um over the years and uh but he would look at he would look at this forecast and he would he would be like okay 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 so take take your take your forecast and cut it in half and see what happens and then take it and cut it in half again essentially go to go to 25 percent. and what what happens with your model if, if that's the case 
so that that compelled me to kind of poke at this and and really really think through what this might look like. And then he wrote a check to to uh, to kick kickstart the ratio eight. And so there's there's been a um, there were there was an early early group of people that were really pivotal and really influential for me to have the confidence to start first Clive and then later to start ratio. And then my dad helped me to recruit one of our uh, former employees at, at the wakeboarding business who had gone off to do something entirely different. And we recruited him to join the team and be our COO, our, our, our director of development. And he was the one that actually figured out how to deliver his name's Brad, Brad Wallhead. He was the one who figured out how to actually ship this friggin' thing that I had, I had spent all this time, like, you know, celebrating this wonderful concept the theory of a coffee maker. And he was the one that actually worked for 18 months to ship it. And so that, that was a, that was an essential piece of it, I think was, was essentially pulling in a co-founder. And then it was as, as the realities of uh, the costs of building a physical product of this complexity and, and quality became clear. Then we had to, I had to find new investors and more investors. And so I quickly outpaced the capacity of my close network to write checks and had to learn what it's like to pitch much wealthier people and get them to write a check. And we did a crowdfunding round and everything else. So it's been a process, I guess, of, of building the, the the team, the company, the support network that we need to for the company to be viable. And it is admittedly way harder than I ever expected. I mean, I am like, I'm like, I'm wildly idealistic. <laughs> uh, but I've had enough people join me, whether it's just as, a, as an advisor level or an, an investor level or whatever it is that have really helped to uh, refine and, and stress test and simplify and you know, some of my crazier ideas, you know, I, if, if I had my druthers, we would have like, we'd be dropping a brand, we would be dropping right now a British racing green ratio eight with brass, brass trim pieces and like some like really obscure wood species trim on it, whatever. We'd be doing artist collaborations and we'd, we'd have, you know, we'd have coffee receptions on a roof somewhere brewing on ratios, you know, like, but like, we're just, we're not there yet. So, and, and the fact that we're not there yet is a, a testament to, the people on the team that are like the breaks to my, to my natural over ambition or whatever it is. So it's been a process and uh, we're still learning, but you know, it, it literally takes all kinds. And if it was just me, um, we would have gone out of business, you know, 13 years ago. <laughs> you, you mentioned um, you sort of hinted at maybe in, in that, and then earlier in our conversation on some of the difficult trade-offs you sometimes need to make between um, product quality and business quality and uh, i'm sure there's a, a you know there's a lot of other trade-offs as well but can you tell us maybe a little bit about what you've learned on you know I, I sort of i guess if we start from the notion of if you built the 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 brewer that did and had and looked and what everything you wanted you know this would be a million dollar brewer and it, it would be amazing but um yeah. you, know, you could you could probably only sell you know 20 of those and then the flip side, of course, is is Mr. Coffee, which is you know I think not just doesn't deliver you know doesn't deliver isn't outstanding on on any category, and so you've kind of had to sit between those poles, and and then also figure out how to make this a, an obviously an economically viable thing too. So what have you learned about kind of making those trade offs? that's you know keeps you in that Venn diagram of beauty, quality, simplicity, but is yeah. sustainable from a business perspective, but also is true to your, your vision and, and, you know, wanting to have a beautiful brewer that makes wonderful coffee. Yeah. 
It's a great question. You know, there's um, uh, one of my one of my informal mentors of the years has been uh, Kyle Anderson, the co-founder of Barata Grinders, and he got me to appreciate lean manufacturing very early on. So I started to, you know, there was the Lean Startup book by Eric Reed, I think it is. So I, I read that book about sort of the software side of, develop, of building a business in a, in a lean way, and then Kyle helped me understand the actual like lean manufacturing process and there's this word, Japanese word, muda, it's like waste. And one, one aspect of waste is if you have quality or complexity or cost built into your product, the customer actually doesn't care about and they're not willing to pay for, that's muda. You should actually take it out. And our, the original ratio eight, we came up with this really clever way. It, it, you know, it, is, it is clever, but we, we wanted to detect how much water was in the water tank. And the, Probably the, the way most people would do that is with a scale. The problem with the scale is it's a sensitive instrument and um, they tend to be the, one of the first things to go out in a product. And I can't tell you, I would not want to take a call from someone who couldn't make coffee that morning because the scale went out on their coffee maker. <laughs> um, so we came up with a, a way of detecting the water in the tank. We're using air pressure. So as you add water to the tank, it pressurizes this thin tube of air that's connected to a pressure sensor on the, on the PCB board. And it would take it would take a, a calculation or a measure measurement of the difference between atmospheric pressure and then the pressurized uh, the pressure of the water in the tank. And from there, we had a a, a brewing uh, a brewing table more or less, and we would say with this with this if then calculation of based up basically if there's this amount of this amount of water in the tank, do this amount of bloom time, wait this long, and then finish commence the rest of the brewing the brewing phase. So in th- in theory. Elegant design, clever solution, and that was the way we did it for a long time. Um, and then we uh, we came out with the ratio six in 2019. And as we were developing ratio six, we sort of surveyed our customers yet again, like it, it, with with more intentionality. And what we discovered, most people didn't know that the ratio eight was doing that. It was a feature that was there that people didn't really care about. And we also, essentially, in dialing in the ratio six, we needed to pull back the cost. We didn't have the budget on the component side to include this this design. We also didn't have the wood trim pieces where we hid the the airline that would feed into the PCB. So we had to solve for that. And so we spent a lot of time on the brewing side and testing and and talking to our customers and whatever else. And we realized, do you know what? Most people are brewing at least at, at, at the low side a half batch, 20 ounces of coffee, but most people are brewing full batch, maybe three quarters to a full batch. So the sensitivity we had built into this device was essentially unnecessary. And the we also realized that there was a warranty, there was a warranty incidence rate that was higher than it should have been related to this sensitive instrument. It was better than a scale, but it was still too finicky. And so we pulled that out of the ratio eight. It doesn't do that any longer. It's a, it, it, it's, it still has a essentially around a 30 second bloom time and then a rest and then a, and a brew time. But we realized that the, that we were adding sensitivity and complexity and cost in a way that our customers didn't actually care about, um, and that was causing you know supply chain friction and customer service friction and all these other things. So the trade-off is, in our opinion, better to have a more rugged and durable device and to pull out this feature that they really actually wasn't actually improving their their cup quality. Another example is uh, when we came out with a double wall insulated carafe for the ratio eight. I put on the product requirements document that I would love for it to be the same size, the same, essentially the same 
profile as our hand-blown glass scrap that we still produce to this day. And so that requirement that I put on there, in hindsight, was stupid. It was a totally unnecessary requirement. That, that thermal craft should have been 10% bigger because the downline implications of that requirement, like we had to do a special type of laser welding process on the inside of this double wall doer. And then the volume, the volume issues related to how much coffee you can fill. Anyway, it caused all these issues. And my COO, Brad, spent months trying to solve for this stupid, stupid requirement that we shouldn't have had. And so that's, you know, that isn't exactly a quality thing per se, but it's an example where my dream scenario for this product was causing stress for my COO and stress for the supply chain and complexity that was not necessary. So I had to, uh, I had to pull back on that. And so as we've, we're, we're working on our next brewer called the ratio four. And so I think I, hopefully I, I am a better product visionary with the experience behind me of the ratio eight and the ratio six. And hopefully we deliver something that is, is a ratio product that's as delightful and, and uh, you know, just just like the ratio eight and the ratio six, but there's more of a design for manufacturer thinking that goes into that that product, which ultimately leads to a a better quality supply chain, a better quality assembly process, a better quality customer service experience, a better company for our investors. So it's a it's this full complete picture of quality, not just an obsession around like the physical product itself. Right. Yeah. That idea of of Muda is that's uh, so fascinating. It's um. Yeah. It makes me wonder where where else in in my life and in the things I do and in the things I have, you know, where where have I paid for things I didn't value? Um, yeah. It's a it's a fascinating lens, um, and, and that that kind of naturally leads us. So I'm going to nudge us to some some closing questions. But just before I do that, um, can you say anything about what's coming down the pipe, whether that be for Clive or Ratio or or other things? I mean, it, you're you're clearly so deep in in product. I mean, I'm I'm curious what what else might the world expect out of you and your your operations in the coming years? Oh boy, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so the racing green uh, uh, ratio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we we have a. Uh, we're after continuous improvement. So the ratio eight is not going to see substantial changes. Uh, hopefully some, some special limited drops of different colors and, and wood combinations. Uh, the ratio six, we're undergoing a, a, a thermal graph lid revision. Um, I've, I've never been thrilled with that design from the very beginning. And we just didn't have the capital to invest in a, in a substantially better design. Uh, we now have that capital. And so we kicked that off and I'm very excited about releasing that probably end of year. Um, hopefully. And then the ratio four, um, thrilled with this product. I've been working on it since 2018, really. And it's, uh, it's, uh, so people ask why ratio eight, six and four, the ratio eight was called ratio eight because it makes eight cups of coffee. If you call a cup five ounces, which who knows what a cup is, but let's just say it's five ounces. Then we came up the ratio six and, uh, it actually brews eight cups of coffee. So then we're like, forget about this being re- related to number of cups. It's just the it's just the size of the device. So the four is, as you might expect, uh, quite a bit more compact than the six and the eight. Um, it's specifically designed for homes that don't brew a lot of coffee. If you if you only need twenty ounces of coffee, or you want to brew, you know, six or eight eight ounces of coffee. It's eleven inches tall. It's got a really really beautiful form, and you can see a sneak peek peek of it on our website, ratiocoffee.com/slash four f o u r. 
Um, that is headed for a uh, probably a Kickstarter campaign um, some point this year um, and shipment next year. And then we and then we are also working on a light commercial version of the four that has full you know complete recipe control, has a direct plum option along with the water tank. NSF certified so you can put in a restaurant, a bar, a hotel, uh, you know, a, kind of a higher capacity commercial format. That's the ratio line. We, we've been poking around espresso as well. Um, so I'm not, we don't have anything formally in production on in that side. But as you know from Luca and Clive, I love espresso dearly. And, and so if we did anything in the espresso category, you know, ratio has simplicity as one of our, one of our values. So we wouldn't just ship a, Another another E61 espresso machine. There, there would not be like sort of that complexity, the complexifying factors that some espresso enthusiasts love. <laughs> we would we would have to in some way offer a very very simple and yet high quality experience. So easier said than done, but that's what that's what how ratio would do it if we did that. Personally, I'm I'm moving my my I'm trying to move my life forward in a way that eventually I have um, kind of a suite of of consumer products all with a similar kind of approach, certainly high quality and, and beautiful and whatever else. But I just really love consumer products. I, 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 the payoff for me is seeing someone just be totally, totally delighted by a product. And uh, going back to the early days at, at Clive, watching someone have their first taste of coffee without cream and sugar, they're like, oh, the, the, you know, that aha moment of like what coffee can be. I, I, love, I love that experience. That to me is like such a... Such a rewarding thing to see um you, we're in the industrial part of portland so you may hear the train the uh and uh you know i i my wife and i have started a, a sauna and cold plunge routine I'm, I'm looking at the sauna space i have a couple of projects in that in that area i don't who knows who knows what the future holds but <laughs> on the ratio side i imagine, uh, I imagine we'll be four. talking again because uh it yeah. sounds like you're you're not gonna quit anytime soon so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, no that's that's fantastic so so um can you let us know uh, two things? So one, how how can listeners connect with you? And that could be you personally, and then also obviously the the products you offer. Um, and then yeah. related to that, if there's any kind of help you're looking for, and that that could be defined as you want to define it. It's as simple as you know, connect with our products to to make beautiful coffee. It could be you know, looking for investors. It could you know, what, whatever's relevant. You know, if somebody said, "Hey, I I'd like to be in Mark's world," what kind of help are you looking for? Oh wow! I appreciate that question. So, Clive Coffee is is still um, quite a bit bigger than when I was running it. So, I'm I'm still a part owner in Clive. I don't manage it at all. It's ClaveCoffee.com if you're looking for anything in the home espresso category. Uh, RatioCoffee.com is the, the ratio website. And if you go to the About Us page, I my email my direct email is on that page. So, from the very beginning, I've made it a a commitment that I don't hide behind customer service firewalls or whatever. So my email is right on that page. We have a wonderful suite of, uh, that's not the right word, but we have a wonderful group of investors right now. We are always looking for more and uh, we're looking for strategic investors that are able to contribute more, perhaps more than just a check. So investors that have experience with, you know, manufacturing, global sales, um, sourcing, consumer products, that sort of thing would be, be really wonderful. Uh, we do have an open round right now. We are d- getting into more of a hospitality um, segment as well. So anyone who's in the restaurant world, the, the uh, hotel, you know, 
uh, high-end Airbnb, whatever. If, if you are, if you're serving coffee to people in a hospitality context that isn't necessarily a high volume batch brewer, I'd love to connect with you. And our, our new product, the ratio four has some really, really excellent uh, applications for that. Um, yeah, I just love, I just love connecting with people. I love connecting with other entrepreneurs, other, other thinkers. Uh, send me an email. I love connecting with people. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so my, um, our, our closing question uh, is always the same one, which is what is the most memorable expression of quality? That could be an item that could be an experience. I'm reminded of that corkscrew that was at your wedding, but, but what's the most yeah. memorable expression of quality that you've, you've encountered? Okay. Okay. So besides wine, I have to reveal what another one of my device uh, vices is uh, I, I really like cigars and, and uh, tobacco pipes. And so I usually buy a, a tobacco pipe when I'm in a new city. So I have one from Rome. I have one from Dublin. I have one from London. I have one from Paris. Um, and my mo- one of my most ex- memorable experiences and pipes in, in, in combination, there's an old pipe shop that it, it's within, it's, it's, it's within the shade normally of the Domo in Florence. And the proprietor has this tiny little shop and he is so committed to a, an exceptional customer service experience that the door is locked, not because of fear of theft or anything like that, because he wants to serve one customer at a time. Wow. And he will, he will open every box. He will, he will, he will just, he has this wonderful sense of hospitality that is so beyond the typical retail experience. And so if you're in Florence and you're by the Domo and you like pipe tobacco, even if you don't, maybe you can admire the, the craftsmanship that goes into it. So, Anyway, when I was there, I bought this pipe that uh, it it has it has a wood a wood um, you know bowl for the for the tobacco, and then it has this really lovely acetate, kind of an orange uh, orange acetate uh, stem, and so it's the again juxtaposition of kind of a mid-century material with with a an old world material of the wood, and that to me like it, I don't know it was for a pipe it was more than I normally spend I think it was two hundred euros. Um, but you know, I bought that pipe 10 years ago, still use it on the regular and, uh, that retail experience made it even more special. That is, that is an awesome, I've, I've never heard Love that. that kind of retailer story. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time with us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Mark. Great story. to meet you. Great. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an, it's been an honor. Thank you for listening. And for more resources, please visit our website, theartofquality.co. If you think of anyone that could be a good fit for this format, please reach out via the website.